Good morning, church. My heart is stirred this morning in thanksgiving for the word of God. Uh, Before I jump into the sermon, I just wanted to praise God for his revelation to us of himself. I'm reminded every time that I, I, I meditate on the scripture and on the concept of the scripture, I'm reminded of the person of God and his, his nature. The greatest revelation of God, the greatest revelation of the Father is Jesus Christ, his son. In, in the form of man, the eternal word came, took on flesh and dwelt among us. Praise God. And then his Holy Spirit And his work throughout time is the one that has given us the word. Because without that work, God is inherently unknowable. We cannot know him without him revealing himself. So the Bible you have in your hand or on your phone is a gracious gift. Praise the Lord. Let's open this gracious gift to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew 8 and the beginning of chapter 9 were all about the authority of Jesus. We saw that Jesus had authority to heal, an authority over the natural world, an authority over the demonic realm, an authority even to forgive sins. There are more healings that happen in chapter 9 that we'll get to in the coming weeks. And each one displays uniquely Jesus' mercy toward his people. But before those healings, there are two episodes, two episodes that happen that talk about discipleship and Jesus' mission to the lost. And we're going to look at the first of those two episodes today. Next week, we'll look at the second. So let's stand and read Matthew chapter 9, Verses 9 through 13. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Please be seated and let's pray. Lord, we exalt you this morning. We are excited to learn about you in your word. And so, Lord, now we submit this time to you. We submit our minds and our hearts. We pray that you would mold and shape them, renew them by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. In each of the synoptic gospels, you remember from last week, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In each of the synoptic gospels, the calling of Matthew happens right after Jesus heals the paralyzed man who is lowered down through the hole in a roof. And remember, the main point of that passage, of that healing, wasn't the healing itself, but that Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. And then immediately, 
In each of those gospels, we read about the calling of Matthew. That's no coincidence. Because here, sitting at this tax booth, is a sinner. Matthew, the sinner. And as we read in the, read, read in the preparation of worship this morning, Jesus' mission at his incarnation was to save his people from their sins. Matthew 1.21. And in our text today, we see Jesus give a call. A call of mercy. A call of mercy to sinners. But this call is controversial. Because those who have religious authority in Jesus' day object to Jesus' methods. But they fail to understand Jesus' mission to save his people from their sins. So let's walk through the passage and see just how Jesus goes about making disciples and calling sinners to righteousness. First, Jesus gives a call. Right after Jesus forgives the sins of the paralytic man, Matthew tells us of his own conversion story. In Mark and Luke, the tax collector in the story is named Levi. But there's no doubt that it is the same person. It was common at the time to have more than one name, especially if your main name was something as common as Levi, one of the 12 tribes. So we shouldn't let that throw us off. We can find many examples in the New Testament of men with more than one name. And right after the events of chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, Jesus is passing by and sees Matthew sitting in a tax booth. And in Luke, we learn that Jesus is walking by the side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. So we know that, G that, that Matthew was a certain type of tax collector. He probably collected customs duties from goods coming over across the lake. Capernaum, Jesus' own town, as Matthew says, where this story takes place, is in Herod Antipas's territory. But the land across the lake where Jesus just was, you remember? The land across the lake is Herod Philip's territory. They're brothers, rival brothers, which made it a completely different country. So any goods coming in were taxed. And the customs officer would be the one sitting at the tax booth bringing in those taxes. So Matthew was probably just a lowly official doing the actual collecting of taxes. Now we see a few examples of tax collectors in the Gospels, don't we? And they come up quite a bit. So it's important that we know what they do and why the Jewish people hated them so much. Whenever tax collectors are brought up, it's with a bunch of disdain. When I was a kid and I heard these stories of tax collectors, I would picture the Sheriff of Nottingham. <laughs> From the Disney, specifically from the Disney movie Robin Hood. That adaptation. You remember that movie? The big, fat, mean, gray wolf is the tax collector. And in one scene, he walks into this poor old dog's house who's trying to hide his last few coins away from the sheriff. And he's got a broken leg, of course. And the big, fat, mean, gray wolf is walking around smelling out the money and kind of whistling to himself. And he figures out that it's in the old dog's cast his broken leg, and so he lifts it up and pats it out, and all the money falls out. You remember? That's what I picture when I picture tax collectors doing everything ruthlessly and heartlessly and going upon their merry way whistling. That is kind of the picture that the people had of tax collectors in the time of Christ. Mean and heartless, and doing the dirty work of their overlords. 
They hated them. There were many different types of tax collectors and taxes even that the Jewish people had to pay to their Roman government. There was a poll tax, which just meant everybody over 12 years old had to pay a tax yearly, a land tax, a sales tax, a transportation and import tax, and so on and so forth. Everything was taxed several times. And there were different officials for each of those taxes in any given area. So the Roman government offered the opportunity to local citizens to purchase the rights to collect taxes to the highest bidder. The person who won the bid had the freedom to collect the tax for Rome and collect commission. Okay. So it gets even more complicated. Where Jesus is in Capernaum is the territory of Herod Antipas, uh, a puppet governor for Rome. Okay, so in Judea, it was directly ruled by a Roman governor. But where Jesus is, it's ruled by a semi-Jewish governor. Okay, so the Roman government gave Herod the right to collect taxes, and Herod would give leases out to the highest bidder. And those people who promised to pay Herod the most money would be the ones that got the right to collect taxes. You can see how this is very unjust, very oppressive. But it wasn't the only reason the Jewish people hated tax collectors. One of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, was because the tax collectors were looked at as traitors. They worked directly with the oppressive government that was stealing their goods and labor. The zealots an extreme political party in Israel at the time, saw the tax collectors as one of their primary enemies. And this attitude was pervasive throughout Israel. Normal people hated tax collectors. The thought went like this. God had made Israel to be a divinely ruled independent nation governed only by God and an appointed king under him. So how could these Jewish men betray their country and their God like that in order to make money? So when we read that Jesus was passing by a tax booth and called out to a tax collector, we should be shocked. The original audience certainly would have been Matthew was originally written for a Jewish audience. Jesus is talking to one of these guys? But it isn't just a simple conversation Jesus has with Matthew either. How how are you doing? How's your day? He says, follow me. Now let's try to get into Matthew's mind for a second. Matthew, a Jewish man, is actively collecting taxes for Herod Antipas, a Roman puppet governor of a small piece of land. And what pushed Matthew to start collecting taxes for Herod could have been any number of things. Why did he start doing it? Why didn't he go into the fishing trade on the Sea of Galilee? Why didn't he decide to work for his father in some other way? This wasn't a family business you got into. Why did he decide to work for the enemy of Israel? We can't know Matthew's motivations perfectly. Right? It doesn't say. But we can ask this question. What usually motivates otherwise free and unabused people to join questionable, objectionable, or morally decrepit professions? What usually motivates? Money. Money. 
There was a lot of money to be made in the tax business. Like I said before, Matthew's probably just a lowly official. But who knows, if he saved up enough money, he could maybe buy his own tax lease from Herod Antipas and start collecting taxes like a real publican who could make a boatload of denarii. Who cares if people hated his guts? He'd be rich. That, that, that attitude's still around, right? And we see the same kind of thing in Zacchaeus. You guys remember that story? The wee little man. He's a Jewish man, but he's also a chief tax collector, a publican, somebody rolling in the dough. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Which master do you think Matthew was eager to serve? The motivation to greed... It's like inherent in the human heart. Money becomes an idol so easily. And it's still a great motivator to do evil things and corrupt things. That's Matthew. He's a sinner. But now Matthew is confronted with Jesus, who is telling him to get up out of the tax booth and follow him. At this point... Jesus would be the most famous person in Capernaum. This was a small fishing town. Jesus had done several miracles at this point in that little city, not to mention the storm he calmed on the sea and the stories coming from across the lake of a scary demon-possessed man that Jesus healed. On top of that, Jesus was constantly gathering crowds around him when he taught. People were literally tearing holes into roofs to get close to Jesus in Capernaum. And now this Jesus walks up to one of the most hated men in this little town and tells him to follow him. What goes on in Matthew's mind for those few seconds? He'd have to give up his big dream of the big bucks. Because once you leave that post, once you betray your bot lease to collect taxes, there's no going back. You can't do it again. But Matthew would never be approached by one of the other teachers in Capernaum. This was the opportunity of a lifetime. The honor that Jesus is giving Matthew in this moment undoubtedly blew his mind, just as it did everybody else around him. A real teacher a rabbi, was offering a tax collector a chance to leave it all behind and become his disciple. We have to understand what's happening here. Matthew understands something really important in this moment. Now's his chance to get out and be redeemed. He understands. So we're told Matthew rose and followed him. And that's all Matthew tells us about his story of conversion. He listened to the call. Sometimes when we hear these stories and these accounts of Jesus' disciples dropping everything to follow Jesus, we question it. <clears throat> Did they really just get out of the boat and follow him and leave their nets and their fish there? Did he really just leave his tax booth and follow Jesus? And so we speculate and we say, well, they must have been really good friends beforehand or something like that. In Matthew's case, 
Did he really just get up and leave? The answer is clearly yes. When our hearts, listen to this, when our hearts are renewed by the Spirit and we have a real encounter with Jesus, even money pales in comparison to following him. Amen? Matthew heard the call and he listened. He rose and followed Jesus. And he's excited. Who here this morning needs to hear the call to follow Jesus? To leave everything behind? To see that as the better life? In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Matthew made Jesus a great feast in his house that night. Matthew threw himself a farewell party, and Jesus was the honored guest. Matthew tells us what happens next at the story, at the party, rather. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. There's an important thing we should learn here. First, an important couple things. Jesus is eating at Matthew's house. Hold on to that. That's very important. It's a really big deal. We'll come back to it. Second, many tax collectors and sinners joined the party. These are Matthew's friends. He throws his feast so that his friends can meet Jesus. And he invites them in. Now, we often hear these two groups lumped together in the Gospels, tax collectors and sinners. And undoubtedly, tax collectors were thought of as sinners, but they were so hated they deserved their own category. But who belonged to the sinners group? What kind of people were these? The word could mean two things, and it does mean two things in this context. It could refer to anyone who didn't follow the strict regulations set down by the scribes and Pharisees. Nominal Jewish people who didn't really practice their faith. It could mean those people. But it could also refer to people who have committed more egregious sins. Thieves, prostitutes, extortioners, other criminals. And there were probably some of both kinds at this party. So it's a big deal. Jesus is eating at Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners join the party. And third, we learn that Jesus brought along his disciples. This is a full party. And the disciples are probably a little bit uncomfortable. We aren't told how they feel about things, but we have to remember that Tax collectors weren't just morally repugnant to Pharisees. Normal people would have been shocked by Jesus' call to Matthew. And I wonder if Simon the Zealot is there. We'll find out in chapter 10. He was one of the 12. Can you imagine in Jesus' small band of merry men, a tax collector and a zealot belong? These tax collectors and sinners have the opportunity of a lifetime They get to spend real quality time with the Savior of humanity. What do you think Jesus was talking to them about at the party? I'm sure he made that call to follow him several times. Because that's what Jesus does for sinners like Matthew. For sinners like us. He calls us to follow him constantly. 
And that same call is offered to all people to walk away from their old way of life in sin and follow him. It's a call of discipleship. Jesus doesn't want these people to remain sinners. Even less is he approving of and applauding their sin. Rather, he goes to sinners and calls them to discipleship, to a righteous way of life. And that's a model for us, isn't it? We're supposed to be like Jesus and call people to become disciples. And we've been given this command to make disciples of all nations, but it's very easy to neglect that. This is the joy and the burden of every Christian to see the lost saved and discipled. A common application of this text is to say something like, who are the tax collectors of our day? Do we go to them? It's a good question to ask yourself, especially if you hold prejudice in your heart. But we look around us, and we find that the world is full of people who qualify, full of sinners. There's not just one group. All people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And no one is so far gone that they can't become a disciple of Jesus. So instead of asking, who are the tax collectors of our day? I want to challenge you with this. Write this down. Who have you called to follow Jesus recently? Who are you actively discipling in the faith? Jesus is a model for us to go to people who we wouldn't expect to follow Jesus. And Matthew represents a promise that there will be many who follow Jesus that we would not have expected. Let me say that again. There will be many in the kingdom of heaven that we would not have expected. Do we believe that to be the case? Second, Jesus gives a call of mercy. Matthew doesn't really tell us anything else about the party, but he does tell us the response to the party. We read, the Pharisees saw this. When we read that, we might ask, why are these creepy dudes peeking into Matthew's house? But Matthew is just using an expression here. The Pharisees were not peering into the party, and they certainly were not there They would not have been caught dead in a tax collector's house. Most likely they heard about the party shortly after. Matthew is using a common idiom. Capernaum was a small town and word got around quick, especially word about its most famous citizen. So instead of asking Jesus what he was up to in Matthew's house, they approach his disciples. They say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And hidden in that question are a couple subtle insults. The Pharisees called Jesus your teacher, basically asking the disciples, why are you following this guy? And by not talking to Jesus directly, they imply that he is beneath them. And this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the Pharisees openly oppose Jesus themselves. Last week it was the scribes, you you recall. But they questioned in their hearts, it was quiet question why Jesus was blaspheming. And this week, the Pharisees asked their question out loud. 
But they ask the disciples, not Jesus directly. So there's a building tension that we'll notice through the book of opposition to Jesus. Soon they'll start questioning Jesus to his face. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? From their perspective, it's a valid question. Because we're missing a piece of the puzzle. In our culture, we can go over to someone's house and share a meal, and that's fine. It's nothing more than a meal. Maybe even, in the smallest way, a declaration of of friendship, which we should be offering to anybody. And I don't think anybody would disagree. But in Jesus' culture, that's not the case. Jesus accepted the hospitality of a tax collector. Hospitality is a main theme throughout the book of Matthew. That Jesus goes to places people wouldn't normally go and accepts the hospitality from people he, you shouldn't accept it from. That's the case here. It was like Jesus saying, I want to honor this man by accepting his hospitality. I want to honor this tax collector. And for the Pharisees, that's a statement of approval. Jesus approved of Matthew as a sinner in their minds. But it was also a statement of identification. To the Pharisees, Jesus is saying that he is like Matthew, that they run in the same circles. They're the same kinds of people. They like the same stuff. They do the same things. They have the same worldview. The Pharisees wouldn't dream of eating with a tax collector in their home because they would not want to identify with them or give approval to their sin. So to maintain their cleanliness, they wouldn't even talk to or look at a tax collector. But Jesus understands that eating with someone is not necessarily approving of their whole way of life. In fact, Jesus calls Matthew out of the tax booth. He doesn't want him to stay there. And that's the case with all of the tax collectors and sinners at the party. Jesus is most interested in seeing them restored and redeemed, just as he is with every sinner. Notice in verse 12 that Jesus doesn't give his disciples a chance to respond, to speak up for him. He answers for them, which is really interesting. Because apparently the Pharisees asked the question to Jesus' disciples while he's standing close by, which is kind of gross. I used to be a youth pastor. It reminds me of uh, the behavior of like a particularly mean 13-year-old girl. But his response gets right to his motivations for attending Matthew's farewell party. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus understands himself to be a physician sent to the sick. His work is a work of mercy. When Jesus looked around at the party, at all the guests in attendance, he didn't see them as dishonorable sinners primarily, but as sick image bearers. Was Jesus happy about their sin? No. But was Jesus willing to go to them and tend to them? Yes. He is the great physician of souls. Matthew was a sin-sick 
man. But Jesus pulled him out of that tax booth and into a life of discipleship. Jesus gives his call of mercy to all such people. People need the mercy of God for their sin, just like a a burned man needs a balm for his injuries. And of course, Jesus is using a small parable here to teach the Pharisees, to help them understand. Sin is actually much more than mere sickness. Sin is death. And in that sense, Jesus transcends medicine in his ability to raise the dead, because that's what he does for sinners. But the metaphor still stands. The well, or those who view themselves as healthy, find no need for a doctor. Which brings us to our third point. Jesus gives a call of mercy to sinners. There are three parts of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Three phrases and sentences. A metaphor of himself as a physician. A quote from Hosea 6. And a final clarifying conclusion to all of it. Verse 13 says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Go and learn. That was a typical phrase a teacher, a rabbi might use to tell his students. Jesus isn't implying that the Pharisees don't know of Hosea 6.6. When he says, go and learn, he's not saying, go and find out for the first time. He's saying, go and discern the real meaning of this text. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It sounds a lot like what we read in Micah 6.8 recently, doesn't it? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Hosea 6.6 says this in the ESV, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The ESV, which I just quoted, is translated from the original Hebrew. Jesus quotes the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is what everybody used at his time. So that important word, steadfast love, which we looked at a bunch in the book of Micah, is translated as mercy in Greek. But the meaning is the same. God is more interested in how we treat other people than he is in our ritualistic worship. The Pharisees were very concerned about rituals. Remember, the the word sinner basically described anybody who didn't follow their rituals or their system of rules built up around the Mosaic law. The Pharisees were very concerned about ritual cleanness, the order and perfection of their sacrifices, and the tithing of various herbs from the garden. But they were not very concerned with steadfast love, with mercy toward others. If a tax collector, theoretically, approached a Pharisee repentantly and already purified from the temple, from his sin, and if that tax collector asked that Pharisee to teach him as a disciple, his chances would still be pretty slim, but the Pharisee might accept. But it would be unthinkable 
for a Pharisee to approach an unrepentant tax collector at a tax booth and ask him to follow him as a disciple in the midst of his sin. In their minds, that would make them unclean. They thought of tax collectors as unclean, not worthy of their interaction, dangerous religiously. But that's exactly what Jesus does. He approached the unclean tax collector and calls him out of his sin and into discipleship. Jesus understood what God really wanted from his people. God wants us to show mercy and steadfast love. And the story displays a really important thing for us. Mercy and steadfast love for us is evangelism and a call to discipleship. Matthew was not worthy of Jesus. But Jesus goes to an active sinner at his place of sin and calls him to discipleship and repentance. That's the model for us. That is steadfast love and mercy. So when Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6, does that mean God doesn't want sacrifices in general? No. God still wanted the people to worship him properly. But the Pharisees had it backward. They had the ritual without the love. Their religion didn't touch their hearts. Their love for God didn't extend to a love for his people. And what we learn from the book of Revelation is that churches still did this. The idol of ritual is still a temptation to come and do all of the stuff over and over but to lose your first love. And whenever that happens, it's right to question the love that you even express for God in your rituals. Because if a love for God doesn't extend to a love for his people, it's not orderly and correct. So Jesus tells them to go and learn that passage. Go and meditate on it. Find out what it actually means. Because Jesus, Jesus concludes like this, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's a direct conclusion that Jesus makes from that verse, Hosea 6.6. 6. The Pharisees expected the Messiah to come and vindicate their definitions of righteousness and lift them up. They expected a coming king who would reign in a palace and who would exercise his righteousness over sinners. That's what they expected. They didn't expect the Messiah to go to a tax collector. But Jesus came to save sinners, Matthew 1.21. And in that sense, he fulfills God's desire, as Hosea stated it. He came to show mercy and grace to the lost, steadfast love to sinners, not to vindicate the ritualistic righteousness of the Pharisees. Jesus demonstrated for the Pharisees what God actually wanted out of the religious rulers in Israel. He wanted them, the Pharisees, the ones that knew the law, to go to the lost and bring them in. But they were too caught up in their own righteousness and their own self-justification. Imagine if the Pharisees got on board earlier. Jesus shows them how it's done. 
He goes to sinners. He calls them to discipleship. And he extends the hand of friendship to them. But he doesn't leave them there. They don't remain sinners forever. Jesus came to call sinners to real righteousness. He did not come to vindicate the self-righteous. There are two direct takeaways of this truth. First, we have to remember that all of us were like Matthew, and some of us still are today. All of us are sinners in need of grace, amen? All of us, including the Pharisees. None of us are good enough to follow Jesus on our own. None of us qualify for discipleship. None of us are able to clean ourselves up enough to to approach Jesus. Peter, James, and John were not better disciples just because they were fishermen before they followed him. Every single one of Jesus' disciples throughout time should view their salvation like Matthew did, a radical extension of God's steadfast love and mercy and grace to them despite their sin. Jesus is not setting up a real dichotomy in this last phrase. He's not saying that there really are righteous people on earth and that he doesn't need to save them. Even less is he saying that the Pharisees are righteous and belong to that group. He even says in Matthew 5.20, you'll remember this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Their so-called righteousness wasn't even good enough. So the first takeaway is this. We are all sinners first in need of the grace of God paid for by the blood of Jesus. And the second takeaway is this. If you feel good enough for Jesus, apart from his blood, if you feel qualified to be his disciples based off your works, if you feel righteous enough for the Savior, he doesn't want you. Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus came to save sinners, but self-righteousness and self-justification will blind you to the fact that you also belong to that category. Matthew was well aware of his place in society. When Jesus gave him the call to discipleship, he leapt at the chance. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son, which you know well. We know the first half, right? The prodigal son is very aware of his sin. And when he comes back to the father, the father runs out to him and hugs him and brings him back in. We, we celebrate that as a story of salvation. But the point of the parable is the older brother who stuck around. It ends on a question mark. You remember the parable? The older brother, the self-righteous brother who thought he earned the love of the father is left out of the party. Self-justification, self-righteousness can be an idol that festers in our hearts. Matthew experienced God's grace and each one of us need to. 
self-justification and self-righteousness can convince us that all our good works qualify us for heaven because we've followed the rules. We've done all the rituals. We attended church since we were a little boy or girl. But if we haven't experienced the salvation brought by the great physician of souls, we will be left out of the party. Each one of us needs to respond to the call of mercy that Jesus extends to sinners. We need to respond in faith because by faith alone, in the great grace of God alone, are we saved. We can do that now. If you have never done that, you can place your faith in Jesus Christ and come into the party. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that you would move in hearts now for those who have not believed in the cross and in the empty tomb. I pray that you would move on their hearts. Lord, it is so easy. It's really easy to trust in ourselves and in our own works, thinking that you have to save us because we've done X, Y, and Z. But Lord, we confess now that we know that without your grace, without your calling of mercy, we can't experience a full relationship with you, reconciliation with you. So Lord, I pray that you would reconcile sinners now. Lord, I also ask that you would place a heavy burden on the hearts of those lifelong Christians in this room to disciple young Christians and to seek to see the lost saved. Pray that you would move in their hearts to know that that is their calling too. In Jesus' name, amen.